Welcome to The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I am Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and today I'm so honored to be joined by the hero of the documentary, The Cave, Dr. Amani Balur, as well as producer Sigrid Dykjar. Welcome, Dr. Amani and Sigrid. I'm so happy to be speaking to you. How are you today? Thank you. I'm fine. Oh, good. And Sigrid, you look happy, and we're so honored to have both of you here. So Very happy we... to be here. Oh, thank you. Before we talk about the cave, which is such an incredible piece of art and also a piece of activism that I hope every human being gets the opportunity to see at some point, Dr. Amani, I would love to speak to you about how difficult it is for a woman to become a doctor in your community. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey in studying medicine and, and thus becoming a physician? Uh, yeah, in, in my country, and especially in, from my place, I'm from countryside of Damascus, not from the city center. The situation for women is, um, is really bad, and it, it's still bad for now. Uh, it's, it's not very difficult to be a doctor, but doctor for women, doctor for children, but not a surgeon, for example, not manager of the hospital. That's why I faced a lot of problems, because I wanted to be manager of the hospital. And when I decided to, to study and complete studying, it was difficult to me because the, uh, all the girls got married very early at uh, when they were teenagers and I didn't want to get married. That was difficult. But to, to be a doctor, actually, it's not very difficult. And people accepted me when I uh, become a pediatrician and uh, take care of their children. They were happy with that, but not happy because I'm the manager of the hospital and responsible for a place where uh, men work in. I understand. And your family was supportive of these decisions, it seems. Uh, I, actually, my father uh, was uh, uh, very early. He, he didn't want me to complete studying. But uh, when I started to study medicine, he was very happy with that. I wanted to be an engineer, but he said no. Uh, it's not for uh, women. And yeah, I, I had some problems and then I, I gave up and I started to study medicine. He, he supported me uh, to be a doctor because the uh, doctors in, uh, in my country have um, a, a respectable place, have a good position in the community. Well, I imagine he's very, very proud of you. So I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> so Sigrid, you've been making documentaries for around 20 years and you have a very heavily female production company based in Denmark. What was important to you about telling this particular story? When Faraz told us about the story and said that he had been focusing about uh, uh, focusing on the women. And this uh, is your were, director, uh, the, director is the director of the cave. Mm -hmm. Yes, Faraz Fayad, when he said that he was focusing on women in this film, uh, we were, of course, very, very curious and uh, really hoped that we would meet uh, a beautiful, powerful person like Dr. Amani. He did the film called Last Men in Aleppo. That was his mm -hmm. first film from Syria. And that was focusing on the men. And they were the white helmets that were taking uh, people out of the ruins. And uh, he knew and saw that the ambulance was going underground into the hospital system with the people that they were rescuing from the ruins. So he started hearing about this incredible female doctor who was actually a little bit famous. Maybe hmm. Dr. Amani doesn't like me to say that, but you were sort of famous, Amani, amongst Syrians. So he wanted to find her and he wanted to, uh, to portray her. And 
it took some time because uh, Dr. Armani is a powerful woman who is there because she wants to rescue people. Uh, she doesn't really want to be part of a film. Uh, so it actually took a while until Dr. Amani was convinced that uh, it was important that she would be the main character of this film. Uh, I think Amani could answer this question herself, but what I was really uh, intrigued about was that the reason why she wanted to accept the camera uh, was one of the reasons was that uh, Faraz was documenting what's going on in his country and these very important shootings are also documents for a war crime. So mm. it was important to show what her and her colleagues were doing underground. Mm. But for me, it was, uh, it, it, I mean, it happens to happen in Syria and it's a terrible situation in Syria. But I think the film is much bigger than that. Actually, it's a, it's a film about uh, a, a person who, who runs a hospital who is a leader, the first female leader in a hospital in Syria, and who is very humanistic and always thinking about uh, figuring out how to make the situation for women uh, better in the future. So she empowers young girls even when she helps them uh, with wounds or broken arms, or she keeps talking to the young girls of empowering them to become uh, decision makers themselves for their own future. So the film is really a, a very big story taking place in an underground hospital in Syria. Mm, so incredible. And Dr. Amani, what were you scared of in terms of having the cameras document your job? Were you afraid of allowing yourself to be open and free in front of the cameras? What were your reservations in saying yes to this? Yeah, there were uh, a lot of problems to uh, to find cameras around me, but the most thing I was afraid of is the uh, Assad regime were bombing the hospitals, bombing everywhere, and especially when they uh, saw uh, a video, a, a report, someone talk in some place, and they know the area. So uh, I was afraid that uh, they might uh, see any video from my hospital and they bomb it, because they bombed mm -hmm. it a lot of, uh, many times before the, the film. And once they bombed the, uh, the, the missile enter underground and they killed three of my colleagues. So I was, uh, uh, my first thing I, want to, I wanted to take care of it is to protect the hospital, to protect the patients and the medical staff. But also because, uh, you know, the, the community and the, the culture in my community to see the camera uh, following a woman, that, that was difficult to me. Actually, I, I wanted to... Uh, to change this, um, to change this uh, image about women, to change this, uh, to tell the people that uh, there's no difference between men and women. We are working together. It, it was like a challenge to me. So you were worried essentially about becoming more of a target because you're showing your faces, you're showing so many different people who then maybe recognize later, essentially. Yeah, of course. And uh, also, actually, at the beginning, I didn't know that they will uh, tell my my uh, personal story. It was uh, actually I thought it was about the hospital, about the injured people, about our work, not about me, about my life. When I I was in my special moments, when I talked with my friends, they filmed a lot about two years, and they have a lot of materials. So I'm really surprised to see it's just about me. It's my story. <laughs> You're. I'm, I'm 
proud to tell uh, uh, about uh, to tell the Syrian story, to tell the, the suffering of the people through my story. I'm proud of that, and I'm, I'm happy of that. So you didn't intend to become the star of the movie. You just that was just a happy accident. Yeah. <laughs> Sigrid, I'd love to talk about the logistical challenges of shooting in this environment, which are so many and innumerable. The temperature, the small spaces, access to electricity, food. Tell me how you mapped out your strategy, if you did, and how many decisions you had to make when you when you got into the space and you thought, okay, we don't have a ton of room to turn around. We don't have a. We want to stay out of the doctor's way, but also still get these crucial images. So t- walk me through that process. Well, I think uh, an important thing to start with is that uh, there were no cinematographers really in this area. You know, it's a uh, it's an area in a war zone. Uh, the young cinematographers we we had on the film, they were actually still photographers, but they were trained mm. to become film photographers. And uh, one of the big issues was, of course, that they had a hard time focusing on the women because that was not part of their tradition. And actually, they felt it was shameful to film the women. So wow. for very long, we actually had to uh, discuss with them a lot about the material, what it looked like. And uh, I kept asking them to, to keep focusing on the women. Uh, and that really took some time. The first uh, year, actually, of the material, we almost couldn't use because as soon as a man turned into the room, the camera would point towards the man. Uh, wow. Or, you know, as soon as they had the chance, even they were filming on Amani, they would, like, uh, put up the camera and start filming the, the ceiling because of the embarrassment of focusing on the women. But wow. I think eventually they, they started understanding that they have to look at uh, Amani and her colleagues as humans, as people, and not think about the sex. Um, mm. And once we got that going, then we began to see material that was much more uh, to, the, to, the, to the feeling. So this is a film that doesn't have a lot of information. It's a very emotional. And how do you do emotional filming? Uh, Faraz didn't want to have uh, bodies we shouldn't see. That would be the normal way you would shoot in a hospital. You would see who they are operating on. You would point the camera to the stomach with blood or something. But he never wanted to focus on what they were doing, but wanted to focus on the faces and the hands Mm. and the body. Uh, We wanted to give you as an audience an opportunity to join them inside the hospital at a mutual level with the characters. Also, we see a lot of uh, images in the news. We see a lot of reportage and, you know, shots in in the news. And he really wanted it to be cinematically very different from what you actually see in the news. Hmm. Uh, Another element was, of course, the whole danger part. The bombings were were constantly happening. And, uh, you know, we had to have the, the, the cinematographers had to go out and find satellite connection and then upload the material via satellite so that we could download the material in Denmark or where we were. And where were Uh, you during these times? Where were you physically? Both Faraz was in the United States. He was in Europe. He was in Turkey. He was different places. And in the beginning, he wasn't inside Syria. But at some point, he wanted to be close to the shootings and wanted to be ready to shoot in the whole hospital system, which was a huge hospital system. 
So he went back into Syria at certain parts of the shootings and was shooting in a hospital in a more northern part uh, than the one we actually see most of in the film. But okay. we've tried to make it a, a good experience for you in the, sh in the film. So you have the feeling that you are actually in one space, uh, in one hospital, but actually the shootings went on in different hospitals. But I connected see. Okay. One and you you physically were in Denmark during this process? We were in Denmark and okay. uh, the whole editing team in Denmark, the sound designers were in Denmark, uh, the composer is from the UK. We have uh, an incredible uh, company that has been helping us with the opening shot, which is an amazing opening uh, of the film, which was done uh, from a Parisian company. So. Most of the companies working on the film, we were in Europe, but uh, mm. Faraz actually went back into the, the to Syria and shot from inside Syria with his brother. So uh, it, it, we didn't know how to do it. I mean, we asked Faraz how to do it. We were not the experts on how to do films in war zones, and which which is very special about this film. Normally, you would get material from a war zone that smuggled out and then you would start producing the film once the material was out. But this film was special because we were actually producing the film while we were shooting the film. Wow. Uh, and that, that, has, uh, that has really crazy challenges. Uh, at one point, our satellite where we were uploading the material to or the, the local Syrian cinematographers were uploading the material to was bombed by uh, the, 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 the Russians. And so we couldn't get satellite connection. So for a while, we couldn't get any contact with the crew or Amani or anybody inside the cave. And of course, we were very nervous what was going on and how they were doing. So of course, there was a lot of nervousness. We never knew if Dr. Amani was going to survive. We never mm. knew whether uh, all our other characters in the film, Dr. Salim, uh, Samaher, uh, Allah, we never knew if they were going to survive. And, and that was one of the big uh, challenges of the film. And I have to congratulate uh, Na National Geographic because they actually decided to come on board on the film while we were shooting it. So it's, uh, it's really rare that you have such a dedicated partner that actually trusts that it will become a great film even if our characters do not survive. We want them to survive, but we don't know if it's going to happen. Dr. Amani, one thing that I take away from this film, among many things, is to see men and women working so closely together with such respect, with humor, with polite joking, sort of surviving together, but also respecting each other, which I have to say is, is kind of rare all over the world, not just in a culture like yours, but it's rare in America too, especially in these conditions. So please tell me how it feels for you to actually be part of a community like this, a professional community where men and women are respected for their intellect and skills. I really wanted this image to be uh, to be normal in all over the world and, and especially in my community, in my country, because uh, you can't see that everywhere. But uh, you know, this is one of the benefits of the very bad circumstances that make us to stand together, to work together. And we have 
uh, you know, these uh, cultures and traditions in my uh, in our community, uh, in the bad circumstances, in the difficult times when people are hungry, are afraid, are under bombing, they, they uh, try to to pass these things, to forget these things. So, so actually, I I faced some problems because we were in in a lot of for about six years, but a lot of time people uh, when they saw us. Uh, working and helping the casualties and helping their children uh, they really respect our work they don't look mm -hmm. at us as a man and a woman they look us as, as a, uh, at us as humans working for uh, to help just people and because we have the choice to to leave in uh, in sometimes we, we have really a choice to to leave and we decided to stay i'm talking about all the medical staff we decided to stay to help the people and that was very great work in spite of everything, all the horrors, all the horrors we, we saw. But it was a great work to see us work like a, a big family and we really respect each other. And that, that make very beautiful image. And I wanted this to be normal in my community. Actually, we have to mm -hmm. fight and struggle to, to um to uh, achieve the uh, equality between men and women because we didn't achieve anything we just uh, we just uh, do a um, a small part of what we have to do but we will still uh, fight and work on that because this this is very important and this is the, the this hospital uh, i think as in the image in this hospital have to be in all Syria and everywhere there was one thing that uh, dr amani told me uh, when she was in turkey and uh, she was out of the hospital and out of Syria. Uh, and I think, Amani, it was so beautiful how you were explaining that, yes, you know, everybody asked you, are you happy to be out and are you happy to be in Turkey and, and, be, and, and surviving? And what you said, yeah, I'm, I'm happy I, I survive and I'm in Turkey, but I really miss the hospital and I miss my friends and I miss my community and I miss my work. Uh, and I thought that was really beautiful. Yes, it's really very difficult to explain that to people. It was very bad life, but I really miss it. <laughs> well, difficult things are the things that we miss most often when they're when they're gone. And speaking of difficult, there are many moments in the film that are um, obviously where we see people suffering and injured. And for me. The, I, there's an image that sticks in my mind the most of the children sitting on the beds. And when you, Sigrid, when you mentioned that a lot of the, your photographers had been still photographers, when I saw that, I thought to myself, oh, this is actually more of a still photography reportage style. Yeah. And, and to see this little boy, I think it was a little boy facing the camera and in the background, a couple children laying on beds. For me, I mean, you cannot get down to the point of this movie more than seeing those little faces looking at the screen. And I want to know what sort of care did you give the people working with you who had to go through this footage and what kind of support did they have to have in order to do their jobs? Because this is just not only harrowing to experience firsthand like Dr. Amani did, but to also be going through all of this footage and absorbing these images. So tell me about that process. Well, I think it's a, it was a very uh, deliberate choice to have as many children in the film as possible. And uh, we, we decided early on that we didn't want to have dead children in the, in the film because there were a lot of dead children in Last Men in Aleppo. And we somehow felt that the audience uh, has been numbed a little bit uh, and, and, and almost can't really watch dead 
dead children. So we wanted to sort of stay fresh with the audience to give them uh, a, a better eye or a fresher eye to actually watch the people. So the children are sort of the choir uh, mm. in the Greek uh, tragedy in a way, uh, and they are the ones that are watching the adults. Uh, so for many scenes, we would always go back to the children watching uh, what was going on and watching the, the adults and the situation. And through the children, we somehow as an international audience can connect uh, again with the story and connect with them. So that was, of mm. course, very deliberate. But it is uh, very hard to go through material like this. And it's, uh, there is over 500 hours of material and we've been shooting with several cameras. So you can imagine, and always in chaos and chaotic situations. So you can imagine there is a lot of material you have to go through in order to find uh, the material that fits into one and a half hour film mm. coming out of 500 hours. Um, and that was very traumatizing. We had a therapist uh, who actually brought the whole team together. And uh, everybody had therapy sessions uh, with the director and listened to him to understand where he comes from and understand that, that he has been uh, tortured and been in prison with, uh, in Assad's prison and been tortured. So he carries a lot of the, of the trauma inside his body. And uh, that is, of course, reopened once you, you, you sit and you look through all this material. For the Danish editor, okay, we can say they have a, a nice life, you know, they, they bicycle to work and they don't have big traumas like the ones we experience inside the cave. But their job is to actually um, show the emotions and their job is to filter the material and feel the material in order to edit it in the best way. And that is very traumatizing. I spoke with the editor, the, one of the editors, like two weeks ago, and he still has traumas from the editing period. So he still sees a therapist in order to get through these uh, traumas. Um, but of course, it's not as traumatic as uh, our characters in the film and as our director has been experiencing and, and our cinematographers. Uh, but still, you know, everything is relative and depending on where you are from and where you live, you feel traumas in, in, in different ways. But every trauma is, uh, is an important trauma and uh, we need to pay attention to that as well. Uh, so of course we, we try and, and get through it, but I think the cave lives with all of us uh, in a very severe way in, in our bodies and souls. Yeah. It'd be impossible for it not to. As it should be. Yeah. And Dr. Amani, first of all, I want to thank you for allowing us to experience grief with you. We see you break down after that young man passes away and his mother is wailing in the background, which is just, just get upset thinking about it. And you put your head on the desk and your colleagues are all very upset. But I also want to say thank you for showing that to us, because if we didn't see that and remember that you're human beings, then... I, it's sort of what's the point of this story if we don't see the toll it's taking on the doctor. So I wanted to thank you for that. And then conversely, I also want to talk about some of the moments of levity in the film. I love the birthday party. <laughs> I love the gloves as balloons. I love the salad, which also looked very delicious, by the way. 
<laughs> and and I love the idea that you were imagining that you were eating pizza <laughs> because every every party has to have pizza. But Dr. Armani, I'd love to know how important are those moments to you when you are working in that environment? Do they help to restore some of that grief that you're experiencing all day long? Yes, it's very important for us and for anyone to just to to still alive to feel that we are humans we're still humans after everything we saw actually in the film you you couldn't see any anything you just see a small part of what we we saw of what we uh, uh we we work with uh, you didn't see the dead bodies of children the, the parts of bodies of children the burning bodies we we saw thousands of people you didn't see children dying in front of us and we couldn't do anything for them it was very difficult moments and of course i'm i'll never forget anything uh, i've seen but uh, to to have some moments to, to be happy or, or to try to to be happy uh, that's very important that's why we uh, we're still alive uh, i was uh, this birthday means a lot for me and um, I was very happy that time because uh, it was very simple and uh, it was the, uh, actually I, I like this birthday, uh, it's better than for me, it's better than any other birthday in my life <laughs> because they want just to make me happy, they want to, uh, to, to celebrate us together, to be happy, uh, they are a real family for me and uh, I really love them, uh, I, I was very happy with them and I really miss them now. Oh, and Sigrid, I'd love to know now that you sit, you know, a couple years after this process, what impact have you seen this film have on a, on the Western world's greater understanding of what goes on in, in Syria and what people like Dr. Amani and, and her community face every day? Have you seen this film change perspectives and ingratiate people to want to help? Definitely. I mean, we've had so many screenings for politicians and at the governments, both here in Denmark, but all over Europe and also in the US. And definitely people feel like it's a call to action. They really want to help and they really want to do something. Uh, people have been asking us, you know, how, how can they contribute? And we've set up a fund, the LML fund that Dr. Amani runs, and you can actually support uh, that fund. And she will be supporting women coming out of war and conflict zones. But I think one thing that, that really hit me when uh, the audiences, uh, especially the younger girls, watched the film, it's it really incredible how much Dr. Amani and her, her female friends in the film talk to the women in, in the world today. And it, it didn't matter whether it was young women in the US or it was in France or... Denmark, or even Denmark, you know, where we have uh, been so liberal when it comes to the women for, for many, many years. But still there, Dr. Amani and her team, they are great inspiration. And one of the elements that they people have been really surprised about is the level of uh, poetry and arts and uh, how well-educated uh, the Syrian people are. And I think it sounds really crazy when I say it because, of course, you know, they they are as educated as everybody else. But I think there has been sort of a fatigueness when it comes to Syria and a fatigueness when it comes to refugees. And for some reason, at least the Danes, they have been very um, aggressive on the refugees and tired of refugees, especially because so many of the Syrians came 
in through uh, Greece and Hungary over the borders. And they, they never really understood um, that the Syrian people are really much more experienced when it comes to arts and culture than we are. You know, in Denmark, mm. we were, when, when, when they in Syria were doing paintings and art and ceramics, the, the, the Danes, we were uh, hitting each other in the Stone Age with uh, <laughs> big uh, bats, you know. A lot of the world's history actually started from the Middle East and, and they have a very deep-rooted culture. And I'm, I'm just so happy that uh, you can feel and see that in the film, that uh, they are really, they're really in, in incredible people and very beautiful people, and the world needs more of them. Yes. And it, it's interesting you bring that up because that is it. growing up in America and you growing up in Europe, we get a very one sided perspective of history, who created art, what, it, what kind of art is important, what stories are important. And I think it's a very wrong interpretation of events. And, and Dr. Amani, there's a there's a line in the film that you say that I just love, which is my job is the perfect outlet for my anger. I love that sentiment. And I think we're all looking for ways to use our anger in effective ways that can help people and help our communities. How does your anger continue to fuel your work? Uh, it's not easy. It's very difficult to, to walk when you, when you are sad, when you are angry, when, when you don't feel good. But I always remember that it was my decision to stay. Uh, I wanted to stay to help these people, to help civilians. I, I didn't think a lot about what's happening and what will happen to us. Maybe we, we, we thought that time that no one of us will survive. And just we work and work all the time. That helped me to continue to, to work because I didn't think. I didn't think about uh, about my life. I didn't think about uh, my, my family, my physical things. I just think that I'm here to help these people and I'm doing that. It does help you heal by staying busy in a sense. Yes. Yeah. When I work, I, I just feel that I'm, I'm doing the, the right thing. I, this is a good thing for me to, to help people, to help others as a human. That's very important. That makes me really feel happy in the middle of uh, all bad things. And Sigrid, it's interesting when you were talking about how you assembled the film with people in all parts of the world working on this project at once, it actually sounds a lot like the way people are working now. Yes. <laughs> the way people are shooting remotely, yes. editing at home. So you actually had a big jump start on this yes. whole pandemic format, definitely, essentially. Definitely. Well, it was very interesting to, uh, to learn from Faraz how to do films uh, remotely because he was doing storyboards and he was uh, sending them over WhatsApp and he was doing shootings in the office, following characters, us uh, people in the office, how close he wanted the character to be to the face. So a lot of the, the everyday discussion with the cinematographers were happening, was happening online and uh, on, on WhatsApp. Uh, so he was directing the film remotely, even though it, mm. it feels very personal and feels very uh, intimate. Um, so for, for sure, I've learned a lot. <laughs> and uh, you could say that in this COVID-19 uh, time we're all in, we actually did uh, remote uh, directing and shooting at a stage and earlier than, than anybody else did. Uh, of mm. course, now we, we are on our new films discussing how we can shoot them, even though we can't go there. 
And yeah. I think we learned a lot. I mean, we, we learned a lot about how you can do it. And anyway, it's super good for the environment that we're not uh, on airplanes all the time. Hmm. I love that. We've all been forced to learn new skills. Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. And Dr. Mani, on the subject of the global pandemic, what would you like the world to know about how this is uniquely affecting Syria? Because Syria was already suffering so much, it's hard to imagine even more suffering. So tell us what the medical community is going through now and how this is uniquely affecting where you're from. Yeah, actually, what we what we saw, I don't really, I'm not happy to see all the world now are suffering, but I want uh, uh, this pandemic, I, I really want it to be uh, a lesson for all the world to know that we have to take care of each other for other countries who are suffering. I really want it to be a lesson for all the world to, to know that what we need in this life. We don't need more weapons. We don't need more missiles. We need uh, we need medicine. We need something to uh, to make people live, not to to kill people. So it's very uh, it's very hard lesson for the world. And I hope they will take this lesson and they will understand what what we need in this life. Uh, so as a as a medical staff, I I really was in very difficult situation. And but the most difficult thing I faced is to choose who, who have to live and who have to, to die. So it was very difficult to me to decide that. And that was especially in the chemical attack. Uh, it happened in uh, uh, 2013 when Assad regime used a sarin gas against civilians in, in two uh, cities in Al Ghouta. And they killed in one night more than 1,000 people. Most of them were children and women. So, as a doctors, we were a few doctor, doctors. We, have, uh, uh, we were in, in the siege and we just have uh, some tools and medical supplies. Uh, we just look at all these people. I remember that very well hundreds of bodies uh, in front of us on the ground and some of them were uh, suffocating and some dead. So we need to do something for them very quickly. And we we really choose who we wanna start with. And I choose. And I still feel guilty because I did that. So I understand how difficult it is for, for all the doctors and the medical staff to do that. And I really want from all the world, I, I will not uh, talk about specific country, to, to support the, the medical staff, to support the hospitals, to support the medical centers, because they, this is really the most important thing in the world. We, we don't need to, to take care of other things, of economic and money, and forget these people. They are the, the real heroes in the world. Hmm. Agreed. Very much agreed. And sort of in, in a closing thought, I'd love to know how this film has changed both of your lives, but also how has your relationship with each other changed your lives? It seems like you're very good friends. You miss each other from what I can glean. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about how this movie has changed your life, but also your friendship with each other. And Sigrid, you can start. Well, of course, you know, uh, being part of the, a film like The Cave, you are not the same person when you're finished with it. And uh, there is another depth and another sorrowness inside you uh, and another um, fear that you didn't that you didn't meet before. Uh, I don't say it in a bad way, but definitely the films I want to produce from now on needs to be as important and uh, as uh, meaningful as the cave has been. And it has definitely changed for me which sort of films I would like to do. Uh, I, I, I ask, keep asking myself what should the audience 
know and what should they learn and what haven't they seen before and and that's that's a that's a very different way of of uh, thinking from my side it's not anymore about oh what could be fun or oh what could be exciting no the the, the thing is now what is important and what are you spending the next three to five years on uh, of a film that you want to show to the world. Uh, and of course, I'm so happy that I've met Dr. Amani. She is a very special person and my heart beats uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a heavy, heavy way with, uh, with love and with heavy blood. Um, and when Amani went to Strasbourg to uh, get an award, uh, she was in a situation where Europe is very expensive and there was no place to actually go for her and her husband. Um, because everything was was hugely expensive. And so my mom lives in France, and I called my mom and I said, you have to help Amani. And so I was so happy that uh, Dr. Amani and her husband, Hamza, went to live with my mom in southern France um, while they still had their, their European visa. And uh, they were living some parts in my mom's house and then in my aunt's house. So in a way, I feel that Dr. Amani, she is a part of my family and, uh, and my aunts and, and uncles and my mom uh, keeps asking and not wanting to know how they're doing and if they'll stay in Europe and if they will come and visit them again in France. So Amani has become part of my family for sure. Oh, that's so beautiful. And congratulations, Dr. Amani, on your marriage. That's very exciting. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> she it has sounds the like best you, husband in the world. Oh, well, he, he, he has the best spouse in the world, I have to say. Yes. And, and Dr. Amani, tell me how you've been able to, obviously, this isn't the only thing you're going to do in your life, and you don't want people to only know you from this period. But how has this film changed the way you look at your life and the work that you want to do? Yeah, firstly, I want to say I'm really grateful for Sigrid and Christine and for Firas. To, uh, to support me and help me all this uh, time. I'm, I'm really happy to know them. And uh, actually, uh, and also National Geographic, because they make our, uh, our voices be heard. You know, we were in a small and uh, besieged area. No one know about us. No one know about what's really happening in Syria. So this is very important for me, and that means a lot for me. Um, actually, th this uh, this film actually it, this to me is uh, my reality. It's it's not film. I don't like to say film. Uh, mm. It's my real life. But uh, when um, when it's now uh, everywhere and when people watch it, that that make me feel very uh, that I'm I'm really now uh, uh, under pressure. I feel I'm responsible for for uh, the Syrian revolution, the the Syrian situation. I have to talk about that. A lot of people know about Syria uh, through my story, through this film. Mm -hmm. So they ask me a lot. A lot of people talk with me, ask me about the truth. This is very important to me. Th this movie opened th this way to tell the people what's happening. But I have to continue this this way to tell the truth about what's happening. So I, I really feel I'm, uh, I'm responsible for that now. And I'm working uh, on that now to, to make anything to support Syria, to tell the truth. You know, everything happened. Now the Syrian revolution started before nine years and everything now still happened. Assad, Bashar al-Assad is still as a president. After all the war crimes he did and Russia and Iran, they still support him in, in his crimes. And now at this moment, hundreds of thousands of people are being tortured now in his prison and no one care about them. They died every day. Uh, some of them died and others are, are dying slowly. 
So I want to continue this way to, to do everything to uh, to get uh, to, to make Syria free and to get rid of these criminals and to come back to Syria. Mm. I love that. That is so beautiful. And I think it's a perfect way to end our conversation to quote your father, Dr. Amani, who says at the end of the film, people will forget the war, but they will never forget you. And I love that sentiment when you're talking into the phone. And it, there isn't a lot to be hopeful for at the end of this film, but that does give us a, a little glimmer of your legacy, which I think is just wonderful. So congratulations again to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Our guests from the cave have been Dr. Amani Balur and producer Sigrid Dykyar. There's more information about this inspiring documentary and National Geographic's many other 2020 Emmy contenders at natgeotv.com FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Thank you so much for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast, is a National Geographic production. Executive produced by Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert, Hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. And in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands. <laughs>